Okay, so this episode is sponsored by the fine folks at BetterHelp. And I hope this ad will be helpful for you. That is, if you're like me when it comes to just quieting down your thoughts. You know, for me it's at bedtime, just thinking about the next day or sometimes about what I could have done better that day. My logic thoughts are saying, hey, we'll do better next time. Or we'll do the best we can tomorrow. But my fears and insecurities are running this meeting. You ever feel like your thoughts are getting in the way? Like you you know what you should do, but you just can't do it? I have found talking to a therapist helps when figuring out what's holding you back so you can work on yourself instead of against yourself. The benefits of therapy will vary, of course, but for me it's usually about learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Yeah, those are big. If you're having trouble with any of what I've mentioned, give yourself a break. Let a professional lend a hand. At very least, a much better night's sleep awaits you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's 100% online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Maisel today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Maisel. Ding ding. How welcome back, uh, ladies and Jews. Kevin Pollock, your host for episode 19 of my Mrs. Maisel Pod. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We're going to break down season two, episode nine today, and we're going to talk to the extraordinary talent, Mr. Will Brill. But first, I want to take an opportunity to thank each and every damn one of you for helping to get the word out, telling everyone you've ever met. What's that? You haven't done that yet? Well, I need you to do that now. I need you to stop listening, set down whatever it is you're holding, pull the car over, and start making some texts and calls on behalf of this particular podcast. Rate, review. Uh, Be involved in the show. You know what I want from you, what I need from you, what this podcast and its potential needs from you, and that's involvement. Write to us with comments, questions, critiques, advice, share uh, any aspect of your process uh, and involvement in the show, how you listen, and and so on. I do love to read your emails. So write to us at Kev, uh, my Maisel. Hmm, I'm all right. Uh, my, is it my missus? Yeah, sure it is. Has it been a minute since I've done one of these wraparounds? Uh, yeah. Okay, back off. My Mrs. Maisopod at gmail.com. That's my Mrs. Maisopod at gmail.com. And I'm leaving the little snafus in. I'm leaving everything in today. Good and bad. <laughs> so that I can provoke the listener to write to my Mrs. Maisopod at gmail.com and comment. Ah, oh, get involved. 
That's all I ask. All right, Will Brill, uh, extraordinary uh, Broadway actor and, and film and television. Just an exceptional talent. And uh, I, I do love getting a new perspective each and every time I have someone from the show who we've not heard uh, weigh in on an entire episode. Um, you know, their insights are going to be just just uh, as Will's were and are about to be for you. Surprising and delightful and uh, educational and, and, and insightful. Um, so, yeah, let's get to it, shall we? Yeesh. Um, miss you. Love you. Enjoy. And now, ladies and Jews, it's Will Brill. Will. Hi. How Kevin. are you, buddy? I'm so good. How are you doing? Just to make the show more international, we're speaking to you. You're in another country other than the United States. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I am in the nearest reaches of Canada. Okay. In Toronto, just ah. across the lake. And uh, what has brought you to Toronto? Are you legally allowed to say? I am legally allowed. There has been a press release in which somebody else has already divulged the information. Ah. But I'm here working on a miniseries for Showtime called Fellow Travelers. Oh, hello. Yeah, in which I am playing Roy Cohn, which is a pretty insane endeavor. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it's a wild experience. I don't not see something in the eyes that yeah. reminds me a little of that devil. You're right. Uh, <laughs> when I told my dad that I was auditioning for the role, he said, oh, you know, you kind of, you kind of look like him. And I said, oh, God, what are you talking about? Yeah, you asked. And then me. I looked him up and I was like, oh, mercy. I do. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Bummer. If there were a handsome version of Thank the man, you. they've selected correctly. Well, congrats. That's exciting. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to show people is that Roy was hotter than people give him credit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hot word. It's such a push. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, listen, thanks for having time on your Canadian Thursday. Heck yeah. And uh, joining us for season two, episode nine. Well, let's start actually way, way back before this episode. Sure. To your introduction to the show, to the series, to the world, to the universe of Maisel. How did it sure. happen? You know, I it was funny. It sort of dovetailed with another project. I got an audition for it. And the episode that I was auditioning for was being directed by Scott Ellis. Oh, wow. Who had directed me in a production of You Can't Take It With You mm -hmm. on Broadway. And so I made an audition tape and I sent it off to him. And right before You Can't Take It With You, I had been in a stage adaptation of Act One, which is Moss Hart's autobiography, in which Tony Shalhoub played Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman. So I had just worked with. What the Scott hell? Scott and Tony, which was really, really exciting. And then it, the, the audition itself was dovetailing with an audition that I had for another play in New York City that also took place in 1959, which was called Illyria, in which I wound up playing Bernie Gersten. So you must have felt, if I don't get this job, I've broken all the lucky charms that have come together. Exactly. Exactly. I felt like this is this is destiny. This is kismet. I must. Absolutely. Yeah. See, now the Jew would also feather in the deck is too stacked. It's never going to go my way. You sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was also I was in L.A. at the time and I was like, there's no chance. Like, I'm all the way on the other side of the country. But it was really neat. I 
you know, I, I emailed Scott and I said, Hey, neat that I get to audition for this thing. Um, it would be so, you know, and you know, I know Tony, like what a cool thing. And he said, Oh yeah, great. You're perfect for this. You should just go and meet Dan and Amy immediately. And so I had a zoom call back with them and that was that. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. That is perfect. Perfect. Like, like such kismet. It was so easy and lovely. It, 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 you know, in a, in a business that's full of heartbreaks, it was like, (laughs) it's so lovely to have the ones that just fall into place and feel simple. Yeah. Cause you can never count on something like that ever, 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 unless you're just a, you know, none of us are blind as those who will not see or ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're painfully aware of uh, (laughs) the job in show business is getting the job. The doing of it is the joy. So So when was your first op to do the joy part? My first opportunity to do the joy part was, I guess, the very first thing that I was able to film is the scene in, I believe it's episode six of season one. Right. Uh, The family has dinner at a Chinese restaurant and we see Joel with his girl, you know, across the way. And it was really fun. This was my first opportunity to work with Justine Loop, who is like, who has become such a dear friend. And she's so amazing on the show. She is. And, you know, it was also my first opportunity to sit at a table with Tony and Marin, which would then turn into like sitting at tables with you and Caroline and like... I feel it's like immeasurably joyful and lucky to get to like sit with the families on this show. It's so, I mean, you know, it's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Those meals with any Mm -hmm. portion of the family are always ridiculously fun. And you were at a practical, actual restaurant for that. We were. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. I think I talked to, when I, when I talked to Justine, we did, I think, speak of that scene as well. Yeah. And yeah, I love that episode. It's a beautiful episode. And then I got to do that like beautiful scene on the fire escape with Rachel that is just like, I watched it again recently and it is so moving. It's such a nice, it's such a moment of nice quietness in an otherwise, you know, very busy and loud and delightful shows. Like it's such a moment of softness. That's really cool. Right. Yeah. And the families are put through such cirrus for Mm -hmm. hilarity that it is really enjoyable to let those moments breathe a little bit they don't happen often right we get a little bit of that in this episode which is this episode we're about to talk about it's really cool yeah 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 and so hell let's dive in okay the episode nine of season two written and directed by daniel palladino called vote for kennedy vote for kennedy So it starts at the stage deli, Midge and Susie and various bookers and managers eating at the deli. And it's this great, fun dance that they do every now and then to start an episode. And I feel like they hadn't done it in a little while. Mm -hmm. Um, One remembers the switchboard operator scene back at uh, when Midge was assigned that. Sure. The sort of moving parts. It was such a delightful sort of something that this show does that. I think very few other shows do is a piece of cinematic farce and with like real cinematic choreography is something you see so rarely, but this show does so incredibly well. Every, the cuts and the timing and the pace of the dialogue is so natural, but also so in sync. It's really such a fun scene. Beautifully heightened. 
yet so natural. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do they do it? But you're right, it does come together in post. This is for a change, not a one in terms of well-choreographed opener. Right. So yeah, it had to come together in post. And the sharpness of this blade with which these bits were cut and put together. It's another example, right, of... um. Oh, I see. We're we're playing a different game here. Right. In the storytelling in the television medium. Yeah. I think it was Fred Allen who said why they called television a medium, because it's never rare or well done. <laughs> but that's because he came from radio and he had back then you took shots at television, this new kid. Sure. Sure. He was proven wrong. <laughs> As it turns out. Yeah. So it's a great opener. With all these moving parts, and Susie's just working the angles, mm-hmm. working the angles to somehow get Midge into the telethon, right? Isn't she discovers, that? right, that there is a telethon happening. Yeah. yeah, She tells this guy, like, you're supposed to keep me up to date on this. Right, right, right. Who does not work for her as he uh, <laughs> continues to remind her. It's such a good runner that I think later, almost towards the end, a Midge says to Susie, he doesn't work for you. Yeah. That's right. As That's a little right. callback. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And all the pieces are put together, fall apart, put together, fall apart. And in the end, success or so it's. Yeah. We see the genius of Susie in that moment, uh, really excelling for somebody who tries so hard at her job and is yeah. often frustrated. We see her like really nailing what she is good at in this yeah. moment. And those little tiny nuggets that I love when they, Amy and Dan go a little beyond even the hilarity they've already beautifully executed. They go a little extra like dropping the milkshake at the woman's table. Oh. Oh, so beautiful. A little run. It wasn't even necessary. No. But as that nice little apology, it is just Oof. beautiful. Yeah. And seemingly, if too examined, a little outside of Susie's character or another level that we don't often see of her character when she yeah. drops off that milkshake. My bad. That's right. There you go. Enjoy. Right. Pretty great. And then we're off to the opening credits and then the Weissman apartment. And uh, it's a dinner table. Midge is telling Avon Rose all about the upcoming telephone. That's right. They're all very excited, specifically about the charitable aspect mm-hmm. of this. And then Midge reveals that she's going to be one of the performers. It takes a little bit of a turn. There's a, yeah, some air gets let out of the room. Right. And all of a sudden, what what is the first thing Abe says is, you know, sometimes these telethons are not what they appear to be. Some of these people are lining their pockets with this money. He does an about face. Yes, yes. And we're left to think only because his daughter's involved. I of mean, course. It's in the construct so beautifully. And man, oh man, is Tony just not putting on a clinic at every turn? Off it, all yeah. the time. Yeah. As is Marin and Rachel in this scene, the three of them dance beautifully together. That gorgeously, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and it's Midge who gets up and leaves the table, which I also liked. Yeah, and takes her plate <laughs> to have dinner in the kitchen with the children. I like that little move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't necessarily often see Midge storming out on her parents and and giving up on like you know their uh, frequent insanities. Mm-hmm. But there is something, too, that like, you know, early in that scene, it's teased that 
something is going on with Abe and that he is exceptionally annoying to the people around him right now. He clocks it with Zelda at the very top of the scene. He says, my potatoes were slopped into my into my plate. I didn't even get a there you go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's no finer point than that. Abe, way to share. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, that was um, a bit of a uh, foreshadowing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for this particular beat. And then I love that Rose comes in and caring about how her daughter might do. Are you ready to perform on television? Mm-hmm. Is your act clean enough? <laughs> yes. You know, so caring, wanting to support and still missing the point is yeah. such a parent thing. Also, a very interesting moment of parenting in that she comes in in a very caring way, says to her daughter, you know, like, I'm worried about you doing this thing. Are you know, is it going to be okay? Also, you cannot eat in this room with your children. They'll think you're crazy if you eat with them, (laughs) you know, Um, an interesting parallel of parenting there. Sure. Wholeheartedly. And Ethan has her back. We must mm-hmm. forget that. <laughs> no. And then it's off to Joel's apartment at Maisel and Roth. Actually, he's at the desk there. Well, Shirley, well, I mean, his his office and his living space are mm-hmm. one now. Shirley playing cards with Ethan. I mean, <laughs> who would gloat in a grandson's face? Caroline Aaron. Oh, yeah. what a genius. What an uh, unstoppable genius that woman is. Yeah, she really is the funniest person in any room she's in. Yeah. And the rest of us just hold on. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's not just the uh, gloating. It's the joy that I get an yeah. extra kick out of. The genuine joy. Uh, winning is just that important. Yeah. Even against a child. Even in a game of chance against a child. Yeah. And the child, I think you're supposed to love more than any other, other than your any other, other grandchild. Yeah. That's You've right. got two. You need to love them <laughs> both. More than all the children on the planet. Mm-hmm. And this one in your face is your, yeah. is your way of showing love. And then Moish finds his way in to inform Joel there's a problem with the trucks at the loading dock. I do remember this scene. There were enough moving parts, at least in the master shot, where we did more takes than normal. Because we all took turns messing up mm. our lines. <laughs> And, you know, the precision of the show is something I always like to ask guests of the podcast about. You so come from theater that Mm -hmm. it's been a part of your education and your work for so long. Was it something that you instantly celebrated about the show in terms of your work? Because some actors love those boundaries of, okay, I don't have to worry about participating in the changing of the dialogue. I do really revel in a very tight, well-written script. I think there is actually more room, the better a script is written, the more room there is to play inside of adhering, you know, word for word perfectly to the dialogue. I think there's actually the best written things. There's tons of room to play inside of. And I cherished that about these scripts from the first time that I showed up. And in rewatching this episode, it continues to astonish me just how quick and natural and like theater every single scene of this show 
is. It's so fun. I do remember in the first episode that Justine and I worked on together, Justine had a big block of dialogue yeah. that she was really nervous about executing quickly enough. And so right. we drilled her lines over and over and over again together. Yeah. 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 There is a pace that goes along with the verbatim nature of the words that mm -hmm. is uh, compounding one's own mind of stress if you let it in mm -hmm. about getting it right. Mm -hmm. And so you have to work through that to be present. And as you say, have all that freedom within those confines to right. bring performance along with the pace and the word for word. Because it's not just getting the words out. It's also no. having the thoughts at the speed that you need to have them and having them before having the thought of the next line while you're saying the current line mm -hmm. so that you can, yeah. you know, keep up with yourself and everybody else, which is when you're cooking with grease, it's like, so fun it's so exciting but it's um it can be a real challenge to get to that point yes <laughs> yes challenge is the word oh. never more challenge and never more rewarding has been this whole experience for me that's for sure and so what i like about the scene also is that it really establishes joel's running things mm -hmm. and abe's okay with it seemingly mm -hmm. More on that later. Right. We travel next to Bell Labs as Abe's classroom at Columbia also. First, we started with Bell Labs, his colleagues. Abe is frustrated with his team, isn't getting the funding it needs. His colleagues don't seem to be concerned about that. They're totally disinterested. They don't want to engage with him a bit. <laughs> it's clear to everyone also uh -huh. watching but Abe. Yeah. Who is sharp as a tack. In, uh -huh. in all other regards, cannot see in front of his face on mm -hmm. this one. Yeah, it is kind of beautiful, the, the disinterest as it's played out among those at Bell Labs in this. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, that that beautiful that phone call, you know, that the guy gets and has a <laughs> has a detailed multi-sentence interaction with whoever's on the other line and who was that? Wrong number, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's really <laughs> and a bit ballsy also. Uh-huh. From a proud member of the Writers Guild since 1987. You know, when you come across that moment when you play out that gag, <laughs> it is let's be clear people, this is a button. This <laughs> yes. is a punchline. And uh, in a show that doesn't much do buttons and punchlines, mm -hmm. other than Susie, who has nothing but That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the wrong number. And then off to Columbia we go where, um, you know, he takes out his Bell Lab frustrations on the class and uh, ends up kicking out what's left of his student body. His dwindling student body. I mean, it just most of the people have already gone at this point. Yeah. And I think he says, where is everybody at some point? So he's lost yeah. track of that as well. He's just been certainly written and portrayed as a oblivious oh, yeah. being who's just caught up in, in his own life struggles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's taken him away from all of this. And we've seen him get short tempered with his family. You know, when we first see him in his first class, he's persnickety at the big board and he's drawing with chalk, but he's also speaking about his personal life within 
the problem that's on the board. So right. he's not acting out at the student body. No. As much as he is taking out his personal frustrations on the chalk. But the, here we see him acting out at the student body, and it's it's um it's kind of devastating for them. Really yeah, really sort of violently. I mean, he's yeah. oh, ruthless yeah. with them. And also these are May his remaining fans, right? Yes. Let's yes. not forget that part. That's right. Who he says will never yeah. Hold a job with uh, that has the word advanced in front of its title. You know, I mean, belittling. Yeah, it's really rough. It's heartbreaking for everyone in the scene, including. Yeah. 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 And yet in the hands of Tony Shalhoub. Hilarious. Utterly delightful somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He really does own a moment. Mm. Everyone. Off to the Gaslight Cafe we go, mid Susie and Benjamin. So this is the first time we're seeing the Coke machine in shoes that is Zach Levi in a suit at the Gaslight, right? That's this right. Is the first time That's we're right. seeing him watch her. And he's sort of revealed, I think. I think it opens on her uh, doing some bits. That's right, yeah. yeah. And then when he is revealed, the look on his face is just like a puppy watching its master create a meal. Oh, beaming for them yeah just yeah uh just love and yeah and then Susie just right in on him right and you you talk about him being you know a coke machine in a suit it helps to show him off as such him being revealed next to yeah Susie and the size difference is remarkable and played to great effect yeah everyone should know it was not heightened no he was not on an apple box she was not in a ditch. No. Uh, they were standing on the same level board. That's right. Zach Levi is a big man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't hire a guy uh, to play Shazam under six feet. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that was hilarious. Yeah. Jamie and I were watching together and she just involuntarily and loudly guffawed at the height difference. Yeah. When they were in the two shot. Yeah. It was unavoidable. <laughs> and Susie's just taking shots at Benjamin. She is not Non-stop. comfortable with him being there and needs him to know it. And it is having <laughs> zero effect, really. Oh, yeah. He's unmovable. <laughs> Unfazed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And continues that way when she gets off stage. And then Susie, I got the sense that she thinks she's messing with them when she says, kiss her. Mm-hmm. Benjamin, I don't sense that she's actually supportive in any way of this union. She's no, yeah, no. I think she wants to sort of like prove you two feel out of place here. Like this is like this this is weird what you're doing. And she's also saying like you can kiss each other because I know that I'll always know Midge better than you will. You know. Yeah. Also, let me see how awkward it is to see the two of you kiss, because you're not meant for each other. Right. I felt there was some of that, too. Such a delicious piece of physical comedy with the two of them kissing, and you can fully see Alex looking back and forth between them in the moment. It's amazing. Yeah. Great staging, as if in a play, yet again. Yes. But Midge and Benjamin are unfazed also when they exit together. And here, in the exiting conversation, it is... I, you know, I, I break out in a rash anytime there's exposition mm. in any form of storytelling. And also as a writer, I love burying it in character and, and whatnot. And it's so, sure. so lovely. 
that this is how we find out that the two of them have been shacking up back at his apartment for a while. We don't know how long. Yeah. We just their banter about what to do as they're leaving. Mm -hmm. And mid suggesting going back to your place and the way that they let us, we, the audience know this has been going on a while. Midge is mm -hmm. quote unquote getting some. Yeah. It's all been taking place back at his place. And we're just left to imagine. What's sure. that? What's what's what? What, <laughs> yeah. what is that? Because we're not going to see it. Nope. It's not that show. And so, yeah, as exposition goes, it's beautiful. It's really nicely done. Yeah. Yeah. Quick, simple, funny. Funny. It takes place. You're right. In a matter of seconds. Yeah. And then we go to a television studio. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. To the telethon. So here's where we get to see television cameras, all the period stuff, you know, yeah. the bank of phones. There's a generation that grew up with telethons. I feel it's been gone now for a while. These mm -hmm. There's been a couple pop-ups, we would mm -hmm. call them, but not enough to know what it's like to have annual telethons. Interesting side note, I ended up doing a movie with Jerry Lewis towards the end of his career, and well, it was the last thing he did, and um, we ended up having a premiere at Cannes. We know, we, we've always heard the French love Jerry Lewis. So when I was there, I wanted to take this opportunity to find out what was their obsession, what was the deal. Yeah. Not just that they love clowns, that they love mimes, that they love Jerry Lewis. And so I put these pieces together. This is either interesting or not. Which is as follows. Martin and Lewis were the biggest act in the world when they were together. They were the first version of, quote unquote, the Beatles. There's photos of them leaning out of their hotel window, some six stories up and mm. 10,000 kids, fans down below just to get a glimpse of them. All those things that another generation later saw the Beatles go through. Martin and Lewis were that first. Then they broke up and Jerry Lewis was given a 10-year contract from Paramount, unparalleled. $5 million a year in 1959 Whoa. or 10 years. Let's Whoa. be clear. In 1959, $5 million is probably $50 million today <laughs> per year. Highest contract any actor because he, now he's going to direct himself in at least 10 movies over those 10 years. Wow. Goes the contract. And out of that comes... You know, the bellhop and nutty professor and some mm. some pretty great stuff. And as all of this was told to me by Jerry. And then during that 10 years, he also starts doing the multiple sclerosis telethon at the height of his success. Right. But at the end of the 10 year run, he pretty much walks away from show business and focuses just on the telethon, which was only seen here in the States. They weren't even running the results of the telethon on newsreels overseas. So for the French, much like all of Europe, Jerry Lewis was the king of comedy who directed himself in movies for 10 years and then poof, walked away. He's still a very young man. There was no coverage of the telethon. Well, here in the States, we got to see the diminishing returns of a once great mm. star once a year over Labor Day weekend. And it slowly became what it became which was oh sad really mm -hmm. while doing a great thing for a great many that's not what this great comedian it shouldn't have been the only thing we were hoping for so much more those of us who craved him being entertaining more than once a year for a weekend mm. but again over in france he just walked away 
after this 10-year run. And it freaked them out. And they, again, it should have been all of Europe, but France in particular didn't have enough replacements. It's certainly in the iconic level. And they just became more and more obsessed every year that went by and his absence continued. And he was this ghost and it just became legendary. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And all they had were these films and these live performances because Martin and Lewis, you know, toured the world and prior to it. So when I saw this telethon in the show, it reminded me of the power of these telethons. Sure. In their day. This was as described in the show, the fourth annual telethon. But seeing those bank of phones and all of that did bring me back to those years of early years, like the fourth annual Jerry Lewis telethon for multiple sclerosis. You know, yeah, it was such a ginormous. The world stopped in the United States anyways. Right. I just made a point about it not being the world. The United States stopped uh, over uh-huh. Labor Day weekend, and, and they were glued to the TV, watching well into the wee hours. As one, You know, oh, there's Sammy Davis Jr. It's two in the morning. He's going to do a song. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's really wild. And Jerry had that kind of pull with the greatest names in that era. Sure. Yeah. So it's pretty, for me, watching telethon scene in this moment of the show brought me back there and then to know that Midge was going to get this opportunity and I thought that Dan mm-hmm. and everyone executing the episode did a great job we got to live through Susie and Midge's excitement of what yeah. this telethon meant to them and this shot meant for her yeah we'd not seen Susie this nervous for her client I don't think right in terms of how meaningful this first television appearance could be yeah. Yeah. And in this scene, we get also a hint at how important it is when they first see Shy Baldwin. Oh. And Midge says, like, that guy has had a hundred hits this year, you know? Like, this is yeah. a big deal. It was all about this year, right? Mm-hmm. She was really making yeah. a point so that we got the instant idea again, execution of exposition. Mm-hmm. We knew instantly, oh, Jesus, this guy is about to be even bigger. This is the beginning right. of his ginormous career. We're seeing the beginnings of stardom right here. Yeah. And he's doing the telethon. So now we have mm-hmm. more of an impact of what this telethon means. Mm-hmm. That in prime time, they got this guy who's having the greatest year of anybody in music. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great how starstruck she is. Because mm-hmm. her sound check, Midge's sound check is a joke. Yeah. And it, to the point where Jamie said, is that normal? Is that Really all that would happen? And I said, yeah, you know, when I tour as a stand-up all these years and they ask me, you know, the agent will say they need you to go to a sound check. My answer is always, no, they don't. <laughs> Let them test their equipment and I will trust that it'll be ready when I get to the show. Yeah. I don't need to go to the sound check. Likely it will work. Yeah. In a television show, an award show, or even a, maybe a telethon, there might be a physical rehearsal. Yes, of course you have to go to that. But a sound check. That's not happening. No. Uh, for me. <laughs> it was a, one of the first ways I knew. Let's see. Is, is my name on some sort of marquee? I'm not going to the sound. You know, I performed for the first time at the Tony Awards Ooh, a couple of years ago. I, I performed on the stage at Radio City Music Hall, and it was okay. an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And we did get some rehearsals, you know, which was great. But there was a particular... Something that feels very similar to this is that I had a, a specific piece of choreography in which I had to throw 
an open beer can at a camera um, at one of the cameras filming the Tony Awards. An open beer can. An open beer can. I had. I was in the latest Broadway revival of Oklahoma, directed sure. by Daniel Fish. Wildly successful. Very successful. Won the yeah. Tony for Best Revival. Congratulations. Ali Stroker won Best Featured Actress in a Musical, and she was yeah phenomenal. Um, and won some other awards. It was it was really a tremendously special thing to be a part of, and something that happened in the show every night was that the Damon Dono, the dude playing Curly would open a beer. He would shake it up and then he would open it at the audience and he would douse the audience in beer. Mm -hmm. And they gave that job to me because Damon was playing guitar for the Tonys. And then they said, Hey, can you throw your beer at a camera? Like that would be a fun thing. So I got to do that, but I only got to try it twice before we actually did it live at the tony awards and all they had was like a piece of plexiglass in front of a camera which is a who knows how expensive piece of equipment yep, yep. and then these huge you know like 30 foot tall led screens was yep. like the only other place for my beer can to go so i really thought that i was going to burn down radio city music hall so not a bad story by the way, no. if that should happen. Sure. Sidebar question, if I may, regarding sure. the many performances on Broadway of this particular revival, when, in fact, Curly opened that beer and shook it on the audience, mm -hmm. it couldn't have been real beer. That's correct. And That's I correct. say that only as um, a friend to enough people, quote unquote, in the program. Sure. That I don't think you can throw alcohol on people. You <laughs> <laughs> think that is technically a rule. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, we they had a very cool system of in on in the Broadway production of yeah. uh masking cans of seltzer as sure. beers. However, this particular production was it came from summer stage at Bard College and then went to uh, St. Anne's Warehouse and then to Broadway. And when it was at Bard, they were drinking real beers and I believe dousing the audience with sure. real beers. Yeah. Sure. But, uh, you know, a show at a college is different than a show on Broadway. So, yeah, there's they weren't the only show that night throwing beer on people. Correct. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. I love yeah. I love any and all journeys while we speak of this wonderful show that should come up. So please. Sure. Okay. Share more should they come to mind. Now we have a back at the Weissman apartment. Simon is visiting Abe at home to see if he's doing okay because of the recent odd behavior. Now, these two have in the beginning of season two, Abe goes to Simon and says, I want my wife to study here. I remember there mm -hmm. was some, and I think he goes to him and saying, I don't want her to have to see a naked man again. So we've seen some That's confrontations right. <laughs> between Abe and Simon is what I'm getting yeah. at. But we've not seen Simon in Abe's home. No. And there's a little bit of nice talk and jokes about cheese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then we get down to business. And man, oh man, it's just amazing. It's really so wonderful. And Michael Countryman, who plays Simon, is just like... He's so delightful in his nervousness yes. to approach Abe with this because you can sense 
the danger that he feels he is in, you know. And because unless you're a college professor watching the show or had someone in your family go explain to you what tenure is, we don't know the ace in Abe's pocket up his sleeve right. regarding the power of his tenure. So mm-hmm. we really sense that the nervousness that we're getting from Simon is just to talk Abe down from the clock tower with the M16. You just right. need to stop shooting at the students. Yeah. The dance between them is kind of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Man, oh man. I do love the moment. And I, <laughs> there is a talk about Tony Shalhoub finding every moment. I mean, something that, that hit me so hard is, you know, the way that he, uh, shames Simon yeah. for going after the cheese and saying, why don't you just cut to the chase? And Simon tells him, like, you know, your peers want you to take time off. They want you to leave. And Tony Shalhoub very deliberately leans forward and picks up a cracker and takes a bite of it and says, wow, it's just yeah. extraordinary. And he says it to the cracker. Yes, yes. As if he had not, as Jamie was quick to point out, had a club brand cracker before. That's right. It was He was that <laughs> impressed by just a cracker. Yeah. Or so we're led to think. And he has another just delightfully, and again, we don't get many opportunities on the show when we're not asked to pace it up. Mm-hmm. Tony's allowed mm-hmm. to take his time. Also, regarding his threats with... So delicious. (laughs) So delicious. Simon asks, are you threatening me? Yeah, are you threatening me? Yeah, I I think he says... He says says something like, what are you going to do? Are you going to stab me? And he says, no, I'm not going to stab you. And Simon says, but you hesitated. And again, he hesitates and says, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah, I mean... Fans of the show know what we're speaking of in terms of how rare it is to have these pregnant pauses, as they're called, to let the tension build. The allowance for a pin to drop is a rare gift from Amy and Dan. Yeah. Yes. And in the hands of these two actors. Well done. Well done by all. Yeah. Very much. Mm. Off to the park where Midge is watching after Ethan and Benjamin shows up. This is also another one of those. Let's take we, the audience, through all the new territory of this Mm -hmm. burgeoning relationship. Yeah, it's great. And Benjamin's take on how is this awkward? Just, you know, his not just as as a man oblivious to most things throughout the history of human. (laughs) <laughs> so far be it for that not to be the case in 1959. Uh-huh. But the awkwardness on Midge's face and in her essence is not only palpable, it's stuttering. It's all kinds of a Midge we're not at all used to seeing. She's no. rarely not in control of all of her thoughts and words. Seeing her not sure-footed, it's such an interesting moment in which we learn so much about the both of them, seeing her so awkward and thinking about, you know, that boiling underneath the surface of it is her care for Joel, that she's like, you know, my husband would have feelings about you meeting my children is really... um Beautiful. It's really a nice, beautiful moment on her part. And then, yeah, just the absolute sort of, not blasé, but the comfort that Benjamin feels about being here. You know, I have a crush and 
I would like to continue to yeah. explore that. And so I will. Yeah, it's very interesting, both of them. Yeah, it's another great dance. Mm-hmm. Another tremendous dance. And this time with no choreographer. That's right. Sitting on a bench. Two people sitting on a bench. Let's see you two dance at a very high volume, fast pace. Do not move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Let's not forget that part. The stillness is another thing that is quite rare for this Mm -hmm. so-called television program. Back to the Weissman apartment we go. Midge is upset that Rose informed Benjamin of her whereabouts. Yeah. Yeah, so we're seeing some mother-daughter tension every now and then throughout the show. It comes up. This is new ground for both of them. Midge having a suitor that's becoming more serious. How each of them feel about that. Mm -hmm. And kind of great that also mothers talking and having a riff when the younger mother is trying to protect her cub right and her ex from getting harmed is she's just right. being protective nothing to do with how many more times she looks forward to going back to the apartment of this tall handsome yeah mother. yeah right now it's just about being a protective mother and her own mother you know wasn't being so protective not a great watchman right watch person who said, oh, yeah, she's at the park with the kid. Right, right. Yeah. And I do enjoy the simile that Midge makes, you know, if I were in the bathroom, would you have invited him over? You know, it's the same thing. I need my privacy. Yeah, you're right. It yeah. was a great simile, yeah. And now we go to, I would make an argument to no one caring <laughs> that this is my, as an actor, participating in a... um once-in-a-lifetime gig Mm -hmm. in every way. This might be my favorite scene of the whole series that I participated in. Just from a solely selfish, you know, I have an incredible scene, uh, Moish and Midge have an incredible scene. You know, as much as we said earlier how much we love those big family scenes, when Mm -hmm. we mentioned the scene with Noah and Midge out on the fire escape, it is those moments where we do get a little one-on-one time that is usually fast-paced, right? Mm-hmm. So here again, we have a lot of surprises between two of our characters. We have a lot more relationship information, some more history, some more background. And for me personally, who does not come from theater, although it may look impressive when I go on stage for an hour and just me talking, that how does he memorize all this stuff? Mm-hmm. I've done this so many times. These aren't memorization skills anymore. Right, right. The fun part for me is to make it all look like it's the first time I've ever done it, but it was long ago memorized. Right. So long ago that I just won't take credit for it. Versus on this show, I'm just not used to the intimacy, the amount of words I'm given, the purpose of the scene Mm -hmm. being so heavily weighing on me as an actor, all those things. And then Again, the allowance from Dan, our director of this episode, to find our beats and our moments and our spots and not be as concerned with pace, 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 pace. Yeah. Still be concerned. (laughs) Yeah. Don't ever not be concerned. (laughs) Yeah. Don't make that mistake. Anybody who is auditioning for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, just remember. Yeah. 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 And this is such a beautiful scene. I mean, it's really gorgeous. Your work in it is gorgeous. And... It's really so lovely also because we get to see such a new color from Moish. It's like his profound guilt and care 
for his son. It's so nice. It's such a lovely scene. And yeah, really something that we have not gotten to a father-son moment like this. We haven't really seen on the show before. And to particularly see it between the two of you is really, really special. It's really nice. And the fact that it doesn't dawn on Joel for so long through the scene, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, it's really charming. It's really lovely. Yeah. And also, uh, thank you for all that. Yeah. And I, I'm going to, of course, be biased and to the point of potentially not capable of commenting without bias in terms of how beautiful I think the scene is. Mm-hmm. But it was also one of the rare moments. I don't ever pitch Amy or Dan any ideas. Just say their words and find the beauty and joy within the pace they would prefer you to say. Mm-hmm. But this time, I remember initially the 60,000 was not the number. It was a much smaller number. Mm. And it wasn't big enough to me. And I built this thing up in my mind. How am I going to even broach the subject with Dan? You know, yeah. And then, of course, I run it by Michael Zegan first. Don't you think? Don't you? Because I remember my folks bought a house in 1959 for 17,000. So I think the number was closer to that. And I remember thinking it should, even though he says this is a house, it needs to be way more than a house. Yeah. I think that was Dan's intent, and I don't think the number he picked is. So, you know, I'm bouncing it off Michael Zegan, who's, you know, obviously too young to remember. Mm-hmm. I only remember what I was told from growing up. Sure. So, yeah, so I did. I, I brought myself to Dan and said, I think the number needs to be bigger. And he was instantly, yeah, right, let's figure that out. Yeah. And then we, <laughs> and then we took him over, and he was totally open to it. And, um, yeah. He was quite thankful and cool with, uh, not that it ever opened up any other ideas I should ever have after this. Right, right. Bring any other ideas. I shut down mm. immediately. Uh-huh. I got one through. I got one through. And it was just a technicality. It had nothing to do with creativity. But it's a shocking moment. It's a really cool, for that reason, for it being like such a huge amount of money, it's really, it's shocking and it's very beautiful. And the point that Moish makes that this is rescue money. This is like, I'm firing you for your own good, you know. Start your real life money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just went through Moish and his brother's business that he got his son a job at. And what mm-hmm. that all meant to Moish and Joel's relationship when Joel decided to quit that. And we've just established in this episode, really, that Joel is running things. Mm-hmm. So, and there's, so there's a sense of, well, this is new. Yeah. So to dovetail right into you're fired. Yeah. And I'm doing this for you. And I'm also going to bring up all of my guilt. You know, you pointed that out. Yeah. It's been compounding. There's something, you know, Joel is running things in that first scene. But there is, in retrospect, after I watched this scene, the dynamic does seem to be in this very beautiful way. Joel is running things, but he's also ragged and harried and miserable. And Moish comes in and says, I'll talk to the trucks. I'll go take care of the trucks in this very like, in one way, like, oh, I'll just do this thing. But also as like a dad taking care of his kid, like, yeah, I'll go do this thing. Yeah, it was in the writing. I didn't want to be foreshadowing in my performance by overly observing. Yeah, I don't know if my son's up for this. I need to cut him loose for his 
Yeah, no, no, it's totally, this scene comes as a total surprise, but only in like looking back, can you see, oh, he is like, yeah, this makes sense. Moish like is really taking care of his son. It doesn't come out of nowhere. In that and way. the top yeah. of the scene, when he points out, the guy sells a carrot, we get a check. And Joel says a building manager knows that. And Moish turns and says, so did my son. Mm-hmm. So the idea there is also, I'm letting go the best thing that's happened to my business in forever. That's right. I'm doing that as well. Yeah. There's so many layers and so many levels of what's going on. And, uh, and you're right. The power between the son and the father is, um, so all those things led me to my, uh, bold statement that this was my favorite scene in the show. It's a great scene. It's a beautiful scene for my character. And yeah, for all the reasons it needs to be, it really wasn't geniusly written and executed. Yeah. Jamie wanted to point out every now and then she'll add these little extras, she calls them. Oh, yeah. And Joel has a Vertigo poster hanging in his office apartment, very much in the background of all of this. Mm-hmm. Vertigo. Vertigo. Falling. The fear of falling without control. Mm. Uh-huh. Okay. Off to the telethon we go. We return to the telethon. It's begun. It begins with the Phil Donnelly dancers demonstrating the latest dance craze, the bop. The bop. Yeah. I lived as a young boy through all the new dance crazes of the 60s. Uh, I don't remember the bop catching on. (laughs) I remember, well, when I watched this dance, I love the choreography. It's extraordinary. And how well these dancers do it. Oh, they're amazing. They're they so fun to watch. I don't know who to look at either. They're all just mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. great. You think the taller one in the middle, but no, no. No. Everyone's got it going on. Yeah. Both those dudes in the front, that blonde woman off to the side, <laughs> they're all incredible. And they all have like different attitudes on their faces. Oh, yes. it's amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They are. And it's beautiful. And also, it's one of those extra little things that, you know, it says, Written and directed by Daniel Palladino. So let's give Dan credit here. You know, it's one of those extras where they're pulling from, I want to do a telethon episode, right? That comes up mm-hmm. in the conversation between Amy and Dan. And Dan says, well, the telethon has to start with the dance number. You know, and in that <laughs> whole discussion, when I finally get around to speaking to Amy and Dan on this podcast, I will absolutely bring up this point. Yeah. Because this is one of those things that's, oh, it's so perfect. So satisfying on this show that they are so willing to like explore every luscious possibility always. I mean, the amount of dancing, gorgeous dancing on this show and then the cinematography, the way that they showcase it is so beautiful. It's endlessly satisfying. It's so great. Yeah. And here, Susie and Midge are still very much confused by military time. <laughs> We've had a few <laughs> run-ins with the military time. They're going to poke their heads in the control room. I love the great runner of everyone freaking out in the control room. The it's they so play. good. It's so well done. It's also, there's something like amazing about that door opening and like Lucy DeVito and Joey Slotnick and yeah. John Cariani, like all turning around at the same moment. You're like, this is a stacked room. This is yeah. crazy. Yeah, the acting talent in that room is pretty beautiful in the way that they all decided. Let's pitch in on this show for this one episode. It's one of the joys that will never be lost on me is how many people of tremendous talent 
want to do, want to carry a spear, as they would say. It's so true. Whatever it is. Whatever. You know, I, I have a friend who said that there were screen grabs of the early call sheets for this, the last season going around inside the community because the entire business is like in shock and awe about the amount of talent and who is on this show this season <laughs> and just how many people are on it that like people on different shows are emailing screen grabs and being like can you believe this can you believe this call sheet it's nuts you know yeah yeah it's really cool yeah oh we get the Susie starts to panic sophie lennon there oh right yeah that is this other wonderful sort of season runner the great Jane Lynch, who, oof, I mean, oof, incomparable. Yeah. We'll get to the scene coming up when she sits with the people, the sufferer, oh, and she yeah. says, I need a moment. I think <laughs> this is me getting emotional, whatever. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh it's so good. Oh, my God. Um, so that's just getting wind that she's in the building. They both go into panic mode, and it's also hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. They plan to lay low and maybe she won't notice them. That's how they mm -hmm. lead the thought. Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of the day, we go to a bar. Now, we don't go to a bar very often in this show, as people did. Yeah. And do this day, apparently. Mm -hmm. Allegedly. But you would think a show like this, set in a time like this, we would spend more time in bars. People drinking hard. Mm -hmm. And the middle of the day, I think, is a first. Sure. Possibly. Somebody write to us and let us know if I'm wrong about that. So you get the script, you see that you're going to have this scene with just you and Tony at a mm -hmm. bar in the middle of the day. And what do you, do you have initial feelings you remember? Oh my gosh. I was so excited that I got to have this scene with Tony. It was like, especially after, you know, the big reveal of Noah being in the CIA to have a moment where we actually got to talk about it and do some repairing of our relationship and just to get to sit next to Tony and like do the back and forth with him was really exciting. <laughs> A crazy thing about filming the scene was that it got pulled up sort of at the last moment. The date oh. got changed for it. And I was at a bachelor party in Mexico. Well, hello. Uh-huh. And I got a call saying, we need you back a day early and we were on some huge beautiful property you know two hours outside of mexico city and i had to figure out an uber to a bus to a cab to a plane it was really wild really really wild. also coming off you know a wild four days in mexico how did you do that how did you sober up immediately? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I did it somehow. I mean, it's, um, it's a sobering call to get, and that helps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was a very sobering call to get. You know, the place that we were staying in Mexico, there were these two very nice women who were making us food in the place that we were staying. The food was so delicious. And all of my friends had a raucous rest of their weekend, which they were, you know, texting me about while sure. I was on the bus on the plane oh. and then I got to I got to New York I got to Brooklyn in the morning and I remember Klaus who does my makeup on Maisel said oh you're very tan and, <laughs> better take that down that's right yeah. <laughs> it's like yes I am I'm nervous about this right but no I was like 
so thrilled to be back on. And we shot that scene in Borum Hill, which is like the most lovely neighborhood in Brooklyn. You know, it was a dreamy, it was a dreamy day. It was a dreamy reason. And, you know, I get to come back to like shoot my TV show with Tony Shalhoub. Like, it was yeah, unbelievable. It was so great. And had you had a scene with Tony directed by Dan prior to that? No, I don't think so. I only ask because, you know, Dan and Amy do such a brilliant job of running the show together, but they do have different styles. Way not yeah. drastically different, I would say, but they are they are they are different enough. Different enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was a joy. It was a really cool Fun, fun day. Yeah. Any singular memory takeaways in terms of anything that might have happened on the day other than slight hangover you were still fighting? You know, the hangover is present. Um, That is, that was memorable. But uh, I really remember getting to play quite a bit, which was fun. You know, it was one of my early sort of like bigger moments on the show. And I remember having a fair amount of room to get goofy. The the whole like, I don't kill people moment was very, very fun. And in watching the episode again, it was so nice to see this scene you know, the second father-son scene of the episode. Yes. To have this parallel of a renegotiation of relationship between two men was really like they parallel each other so nicely, but in very, very different ways, you know, very different relationships. Sure. Yeah. You know, in your scene with Joel, you're saying, get out of my business. And in this scene, I'm saying, dad, I'm so sorry that you're so alienated. They're both like reconciliations, but in very different ways. Yeah. Beautifully. Beautifully smart and fun yeah yeah well not just because you complimented me first your work in the scene is exceptional as it is always on the show we haven't spent a lot of alone time that's right you and i will so let me take this opportunity of saying i'm a big big fan (laughs) thanks man because i'm uh california bound i don't Mm. see as much theater and hadn't seen as much of your work as the other cast members the new yorkers who were wildly fond and familiar and made that clear to me. You yeah. know who Will is, don't you? They would say. <laughs> I was very lucky. I did an off-Broadway show earlier this year. And Zegan came out. And then yeah. Marin came out. Yeah. And then Tony came out. And then Caroline came out. And I was oh. like, oh, Caroline Aaron came to see me in a play, you know? I know. And then and then Dan and Amy came. And it was like really so yeah. special. It's really cool. Yeah. You've got fans on the show. <laughs> yeah. As it turns out. Yeah, surprisingly, against all odds. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of beautiful, that kind of support also. Yeah, for sure. I had this very strange thing. I was talking on set. Oh, Caroline's been after me to do a stand-up show in New York. Mm, Cool. For casting crew. Well, we'll see. Ah, that would be so cool. (laughs) you got to do that. That would be so cool. It's just about what the venue should be at this point, because that's a tricky one. Mm. And Zegan keeps saying it should be at the Wolford. You know, our set. I mean, that would be perfect. It's a great idea. And so while we're talking about it, Amy gets wind of it and says, you're going to do a stand-up show? You're a great stand-up comedian. And I I turned on her like, first of all, we're. But no, uh, (laughs) I I turned on her only because I 
it was just something that hadn't come up in our conversations ever. Yeah. You know, her yeah. father was a stand-up and she lived in that world, which is a lot to do with the emphasis of this particular idea of a show. Yeah. And what she draws on constantly. So I knew she was, you know, as aware as anyone could be of the stand-up world, but never the assumption she was that aware of my stand-up career, which was, you know, very strong in the public eye for a very specific number of years and then sort mm. of shat upon by an acting career that mm -hmm. got in everyone's face. Actually, if you could mention 30 years old this year. So yeah. really wow. 30 years ago, whatever I had established with a couple of HBO stand-up specials was really shat on by the greatest welcoming party in that film because everybody else in the movie was famous. So blah, blah, blah. You know, I went yeah. from auditioning to getting offers. It all sort of changed 30 years ago in that moment. But one of those byproducts is I would never assume, again, anyone knows me from that world unless they're my age, mm. specifically, which Amy is not. So, yeah, so I was really taken aback by it. So it's nice to have, you're right. There's that thing when you get fanship from these yeah. people that you love and so much and are fans of yourself. Suddenly you realize that they have maybe this whole time seen you in a way that you didn't realize. It's really yeah. special. But you know, I always knew that it was it was so crystal clear to me. I, I don't know if I've told you this, but one of my favorite moments of being on set is, and I can't remember the episode number, but I'm sure you talked about it recently, is that big dinner we're having where Midge says that she's a comedian. Yes. And I will never like forget the moment of you saying, tell a joke. Yeah. It is one of my favorite experiences I have ever had on a set to watch like an actor portraying a comedian being asked to tell a joke by a consummate comedian. You know, it the the like portraying a man who almost knows nothing about. Yes, yeah. yes. The meta nature of that moment was like <laughs> so moving to me at the time. I think about it all the time. Oh, I think wow. it's just like, yeah, yeah. It's like one of my favorite moments of the series. I think it's oh, really wow. cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that scene in particular we did talk about, but I love getting everyone's perspective on any scene from the past or any time during the show. And um, it was one of those rare moments where we were all together even alex character oh that's right yeah Susie comes in yeah i think everyone there was a big roundup the only one missing was luke kirby as lenny mm -hmm. Bruce, which would have made mm -hmm. no sense but right yeah well thank you for that yeah it was mm -hmm. the meta nature was not necessarily lost on me and sure. again just so wow from a writing standpoint yeah that's the face off those these are the characters why did you choose oh i see that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Might yeah, be a reason yeah. why Moshe in particular has a problem with <laughs> for sure. With Midge announcing she's a comedian, but you're not funny. <laughs> and thankfully in real life, Rachel's the first one to admit that she is not funny. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I immediately start pointing out it just proves all the greater what a brilliant actress she is. The humility and the ability on that woman is yeah, insanity right. you know right. like you ever watch her how amazing she is with the kids on yes. the show oh. and i'll i'll point it out to her and i'll be like i'll be like you are really like it's so touching how wonderful you are with the kids and she's like well you know i just gotta like keep a happy set running and i'm like that's not what it is like that's you being humble but that's not what you're doing i can tell you know she cares yeah she really cares she's a mother hen to everyone anywhere near the set yeah yeah, cast she's a hell of a number one. And crew, and in some cases, people just walking by who don't understand what we're doing Yeah, in their park <laughs> yes. and stumble upon us. And she's the one who breaks away and helps them through the moment. Yeah. Yeah, good point and well 
articulated. Thank you. So yeah, so that great scene with Abe and Noah, and then back to the telethon for mm -hmm. we open on Sophie Lennon's act, and it is horrible. <laughs> so stupid. It really is garbage. <laughs> and beautifully, you know, executed from a writing and directing and acting standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then Nikki, the wonderful low-level mobster, Ugh. muscle, really, we'll call him. Yeah. Who we've only seen go after Susie suddenly shows up and says he's working security for Sophie, which uh -huh. I just love. I just love, you know, some again, someone has to deliver the news, not news, but someone has to have this moment, this conversation with Midge and Susie, and it has to be someone from Sophie's world, but it also should be maybe someone who can say, do you want me to say hello for you guys to her? You know? Mm -hmm. But it could have been other people we've already established. It could have been a brand new security person mm -hmm. who would in their own way lend an air of danger by saying she knows you're here. Right. You know, coming from a stranger, the impact of that. But then there's something magical that it's Nikki. It's so smart. It's so it's so lovely the way that this thing is. It's just so well crafted, you know. It's really amazing. Yeah, she said, Midge. She says hi. That just that. Um, oh man. Then Midge has to take her turn volunteering on the phones, and Susie's upset that Midge is just out of the camera's frame. Yeah, yeah. And we see the power of Sophie Lennon, mm -hmm. and it dawning on Susie, and her going back to the control room. I think. Mm -hmm. and yeah, getting yelled at again. That bit is continued, and it's really kind of great. Yeah, her realizing that Sophie has manipulated everything to her doing, you know. Yeah, and then at the end of that moment, Sophie is talking with the arthritis sufferer, which is, ah, uh, it's like that scene is what Jane Lynch is doing in that scene is it's masterful. It's crazy. It, yeah, it's completely crazy. It's completely arch, crazy over the top. It's the only way we'll accept Sophie Lennon to be. We need mm -hmm. her to be that insane. Mm -hmm. Dan makes sure that she's that not self-aware ever mm -hmm. to be that arch and say something to the effect of, I just need, this is Sophie being emotional. <laughs> yes. Oh, Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. That moment. Oh my God. Just incredible to like, yeah. I mean, point it's, it's so cool when there's an actor who you can just point cameras at and be like, all right, go, you do it now. Yep. It's really cool. And then whisk away to the ladies room where Midge is taking care of business and meets face to face with Jai Baldwin, mm -hmm. who we established she was in awe of. And she further helps us with that exposition uh, while speaking bluntly to him about her fanship. And as she gushes and wonders, is she in the wrong bathroom? And he says, no, you all just have better mirrors. And it's yeah. so beautifully. The way that he is teased, the way that they like very delicately begin this character's journey is like. Yep. But it also speaks to the mind of the performer, the ego of a good looking Oof. performer, yeah. be it a singer, or an actor, or a dancer, what have you. Mm -hmm. You do want the best mirrors. There right. isn't going to be a, a better mirror in the building. So is, there's also that. I really love the detail of I'm your biggest fan. Well, actually, my mother is your biggest fan. She even listens to your Christmas record. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, we, the audience, know she's Jewish. There's no reason she yeah. necessarily knows. Right. And it's just such a great little reminder. She even listens so to your Christmas record. <laughs> so funny. I mean, I can't make a bigger point of what a 
fan she is. There's no, she sacrifices to listen to you. Right, right. We don't have Christmas music playing in our home. All of that is in that beat. Yeah, yeah. And the way he looks at himself in the mirror and says, oh, mothers love me. <laughs> right, right. So good. Also great. <laughs> and then um, what are you doing here? You know, I'm mm-hmm. a comedian. I'm going to be performing. I love comedians. I love comedians. I always have comedians open for me. And I'll tell you, as a comedian who early in my career opened up for music acts, it's a big thing for any comedian to get that gig. Yeah. So this is beyond music to her ears in many ways. And they just drop that little tiny gem of exposition mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Shai Baldwin always has a comedian open up for himself. And yeah. Really great. Oh, man. And also they bond over. They both think Sophie Lennon's a hack. Oh, that also that's really great. Yeah, yeah. Her that cracker bullshit that she does. He lays into her in this way that you can just see almost takes Midge's breath away. It's so because his hatred of her is like very serious. It's really serious, More, more serious than necessary. Also, sharing with someone you just met. Yeah. Remarkable poise of someone who's also comfortable looking into the best mirror in the wrong bathroom that's right yeah it also plays into the strength of his character in terms of oh yeah no i'll tell you she's she's a horrible Mm -hmm. i don't have a problem and then and then the sort of you know flippant like oh i'm sorry i didn't even ask if you're friends with her like i shouldn't be saying that yeah Yeah. just i could confidently say that because i really believe that yeah yeah Yeah. beautiful and it's finally time for midge to shine it is 11 55 the show is so over. And I will tell you again, as a comedian, she got the worst time slot in the history of telethons. Yeah. The confetti has been popped. I mean, the confetti went off. As yeah. a writer, you're trying to, how can I truly establish that this is the worst possible time slot? I mean, it's, it's, oh, the enough. host even says, he says the final tally of the money being raised, you know, final tally, final tally only means one thing. Means no more acts. It means we don't need to keep people on the TV anymore. Now, final, finish, done. I've announced it's okay to turn off the telephone. Yeah. You're not under any obligation. All the more genius when, once she's killing by improvising and talking about what's happening in the moment, starting with she doesn't know which camera to look at on purpose. They're dying in the booth. They can't believe how funny she is. Mm -hmm. Everyone is loving it. To the point where she finally is wrapping up and the host comes back in and says, we better put you to work back on the phones. Yeah. We've never had the phones light up at the end of the show. Right. 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 Yeah. It is our first. Well, maybe not our first. It is our new level first of impact in A Star is Born Mm -hmm. in the story of Midge Maisel. And the ability we're again seeing this woman's sort of her foundational ability that makes her who she is, is her ability to roll with any situation she's put in and to weave gold out of straw, you know? Yeah. We see her just, oh, I've got all these phones in front of me. It's a prop comedy now. It's really cool. Yeah. Again, it speaks to Amy and Dan's ability both to write these performance monologues of the character Midge Basil that are not jokes. They're never jokes. Rarely. Mm-hmm. Only when she was trying to do jokes were they jokes, which failed. This stream mm-hmm. of consciousness uh, that is her performance style isn't really a thing. It wasn't a thing then. Mm-hmm. 
almost no one goes on stage and improvises and almost no one goes on stage on television and improvises with that level of confidence or just wherewithal and comfort and ease. Mm -hmm. It is only the most seasoned performer who could do that. Right. And it's not a leap of faith for us when we see the character of Midge Maisel do it because we've had so much time with her. It's where she's most comfortable. And I will say as a stand-up comedian, I've spent my whole life answering the question. It must be nervous. It must be scary to get on stage alone and speak in front of an audience. And the truth is, while it's America, certainly maybe worldwide, it's America's number one fear above death is Mm -hmm. public speaking. But for those of us who do it our whole lives, it's the opposite. It is where I am most comfortable in life. Mm -hmm. Yes, I directed a documentary called Misery Loves Comedy that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Look, Will, it's not a competition. But the the point is, I interviewed a lot of wildly famous funny people Uh and talking about this very thing, this lack of fear, this Mm -hmm. level of comfort that comes from much like a boxer who has people in their corner and they trained. But when they step in that ring, they're alone. They've got their instincts and they live and die moment by moment on those instincts and talent and ability. Mm -hmm. And they are improvising to the degree that even in my case, as I mentioned earlier, with years of memorizing material, Mm -hmm. I'm still deciding moment by moment where to do whatever with it. Do you feel like, I always feel like when I'm in something that I, for me, it's a little different. I've heard of, you know, improvisers, professional improvisers, TJ and Dave talk about, you know, TJ and Dave from Chicago. They're amazing, amazing. Sure. They talk about how that's the most comfortable place for them is to be inventing a story in the moment. For me, I need a script to feel like really, really comfortable. But there is part of me that feels like, I'm in the matrix. Like I'm watching bullets go by. Like I can do literally anything when I'm on stage. And it really is a kind of bliss or Tai Chi or enlightenment or something. It's amazing. Actual endorphin released. People will have a cold or mild flu backstage. They go on stage. They are rid of any illness. It just happens. Healed. Yeah. Yeah. Magical. And uh, we get to see Midge once again in that Mm. element. I got to shout out. I don't know who it is exactly, but I think it might be VFX. Have you ever noticed it's so rare that you watch a TV show that is like a period piece and you see the TV footage and like usually it's just like it looks modern but black and white. Mm-hmm. In this episode, when you watch the TVs, it actually looks like footage from the 50s or 60s. And yeah. it's really crazy. You never see that in TV shows. And so whoever is responsible for that, I imagine it's VFX, but like kudos. It Everyone. makes my day. Everyone in post-production yeah, who is in charge and involved, who I agree 100%. And thank you for bringing it up because that's the great... Wonderful thing as this episode is coming to conclusion, we are going to various locations where people are watching Midge mm-hmm. killing on the telethon, her colleagues. Yeah, and Ginger and the stage deli people have gathered. Yeah, yeah. B. Altman, Jackie at the gaslight. Yeah. Oh, Jackie at the gaslight. What a moment to see him. What, what he's just said something like fucking shit. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Abe in his apartment, Joel in his apartment. Mm-hmm. At the end of a tryst filled night, that's my wife. 
Right. Really moving to in this episode that was so much about parenting, being proud of your parents, feeling connected. That moment really walloped me when Abe hears her on the TV from across the alley. Well, first we think maybe someone's watching in the other room of the apartment. Right. We just hear an echo of the same thing he's watching. And you're right. He follows it. Where is that sound coming from? And it ends up being the neighbors across the way that he can look into their apartment and see (sighs) that they're watching her too. What an impact. And then Rose comes up behind him Mm. and sees the same thing. So moving. Really beautiful. This is all real. It's all really happening. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah. Well, I cannot thank you enough, dear sir. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me, dude. Yeah, yeah. And this is only season two, episode nine. So as the future seasons unfold, I will be calling upon you again if you indeed had fun. Yeah, very much. Please do. Oh, great. Let's meet up and do this again. I can't wait to hear more about this no longer secret project you're doing in Toronto. Continue to have a great ride with that. Thanks so much, man. And as well as in season five, I'll see you around campus as we're wrapping things up. Certainly. Yeah. But thank you so much for this, Will. Greatly appreciated. So fun. Thanks for having me, man. Big fan. Likewise. (laughs) How about that, Will Brill? Love him so much. So smart, so insightful, honestly and truly. If you ever get a chance to check out any of his work... He is one of the greats, one of the absolute greats, and I can't wait to see the project he's working on, Hush Hush, in the Canadia. Um, Write to us, mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about Will Brill, my chat with him. What did we miss? What would you like to know more about? Any comments or questions, mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. And um, please tell everyone you've ever met, write, review, rate. Get the word out. Do your part, please, so that we may continue to do this to an audience. Who cares? Speaking of mail, shall we open up the mail bag? Yeah, let's do that. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Today's mail comes from Maddie from Long Island, New York, who writes, Kevin, thank you for bringing this podcast all together. It's so great to hear about the show from those who lived it. I have a question about episode three to start. Um, Sidebar, episode three, season one. Clarification. Maddie continues. Abe and Moish talk about going 50-50 on the apartment and saving it for the kids when they get back together. What happens to this? In later seasons, we know the apartment gets sold and then Midge purchases it back from Moish. Does Moish sublet it in the meantime? Damn good question, Maddie. Look at you. Well, this is an unanswered question from the show, hence your curiosity and mine. So if I weigh in as Moish, I say, yes, good call. He absolutely sublet. Make money. Earn. Not going to just sit there. Good call. I agree with you, Maddie. We don't know. I'll put it on the long list for Amy and Dan. What the hell? But yeah, let's assume Moish went for the dollar. You know, it's an opportunity. Okay. 
Uh, that's it for today's mailbag. Thank you, Maddie, for writing in to my Mrs. Maisel at gmail.com. And um, yeah, until next episode, you got uh, season two, episode 10, the season finale, season two, with a very exciting guest. Until then, I will see you in my dreams. Please be kind to each other. That's all I ask. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.